All right, let's get started. Uh, about uh, and about how long would you like me to go for, and should we leave some Q and A time? Yeah, our goal would be maybe be something like thirty-five to forty-five minutes, and then roughly fifteen to twenty of a, of a Q and A. If that's okay, feel free to do your own Perfect. style. All right. Okay. Well, hi everybody. Yes, I uh, I am the publisher of this magazine. It's called Skeptic Magazine. Here's our latest issue. Just came out in the beginning. Cosmic inflation, the multiverse, and the nature of scientific proofs. So that gives you some idea of uh, the kinds of big subject topics that we like to take on. Um, in this case, I wanted our um, cover story author to give us an update on what the latest scientific uh, theories are about the origins of the universe, why there's something rather than nothing, what caused the bang to bang, uh, what was there before time, you know, all, all those kinds of big questions. And um, it, whether you're a believer or not is, is sort of besides the point, because just saying, well, God did it is not really an explanation. Inquiring minds would want to know, well, how did God do it? You know, maybe God created the laws of nature and, and, uh, and fine-tuned the parameters of the, uh, you know, laws of physics and, and so forth to give rise to universes and, and complex life like ours. But we still need to understand what those laws are. Uh, and so that's, that's, of course, why we need science. So, you know, to that end, um, Skeptic likes to explore, you know, all the great questions, you know, God's existence and free will and determinism and, and um, you know, why there's something rather than nothing and, you know, all the big questions. And admitting we just don't have uh, final answers to a lot of those, you know, regardless of what religion you are or if you're not religious at all. You know, people are still curious about these things. Anyway, so that's just kind of a general overview. Uh, Skeptic uh, is a, it's a quarterly publication. You, we still have a physical magazine, which is rare these days, although we are on digital platforms as well. And uh, so uh, like a latest topic that we've been exploring is um, conspiracy theories. Like here's our previous issue, QAnon. QAnon is an interesting test case for how to think about weird things. You know, that's the title of my first book. Here it is right there. And if you'll notice that painting right there, that's the actual painting that formed the cover of the book, um, which I'm proud to have from the artist. Back in the old days when publishers still hired artists to actually paint covers. Now it's all done digitally online, of course. And, um, and so what do we mean by a weird thing? Of course, no one thinks that they believe weird things. They think they believe it's you know particularly rational things. I mean, we deal a lot with pseudoscience, but I have to admit, no one in the history of the world is ever identified as a pseudoscientist. They they all think they're doing science, and you know nobody gets up in the morning and thinks, "Well, I'm going down to my pseudo lab to run some pseudo experiments to collect some pseudo facts to support my pseudo theory." So my pseudo beliefs will 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 be founded. Nope, nobody thinks that. In the same way that no one in the history of the world has ever joined a cult. You know, they join a group that they think is going to be good, it's useful, save the world, help the poor, improve my finances, make my love life better, whatever. Um, you know, no, nobody thinks that, you know, at the end of this pathway, I'm going to end up drinking the Kool-Aid, literally, uh, or, you know, or, or, or taking some poison and going off to the mothership behind the comet there. No, but nobody thinks that. And so uh, QAnon is a particularly interesting case because it's so weird. It, it is probably the strangest kind of most out there conspiracy theory I've, I've ever encountered. And I've studied them all. 
Um, I mean, let's just think about it for a second. What's on offer here is that there's a secret satanic cult of pedophiles trafficking in children to drink their blood out, out of the basement of a Washington, D.C. pizzeria led by Hillary Clinton and Tom Hanks and Beyonce. Really? Who in their right mind would believe this? The answer has just got to be nobody. But the polls show lots of people believe it, or at least they say they believe it. They tick the box when the pollster uh, comes around. About 30% of Republicans say that they think there could be something to this QAnon conspiracy theory. So just harken back to January 6th, 2021. And, and just remember the videos of all these people marching around in the middle of the Capitol dome, you know, just kind of looking around, taking selfies and carrying flags and chanting things. And, and remember that guy with the Confederate flag going through there? And I, and I want us to, to ask this question. What were these people thinking? I mean, what could they possibly have been thinking they were going to do there? What was this guy with the Confederate flag thinking? I mean, the Confederate flag, they lost. They're the losers. That flag represents bigotry and racism and slavery. I mean, who in their right mind would endorse that today in 2021? So I suspect that and this is, uh, I should say parenthetically, this is touching a deeper issue and debate in cognitive and social psychology about to what extent humans are naturally gullible and we just fall for everything and anything that comes down the pike, or are we naturally skeptical and it takes a lot of effort to convince people to join a cult or fall for a pyramid scheme or, or, or whatever. And um, I'm conflicted about it. You know, we, it's, it's, uh, we need more research on this subject. I, I think it's obviously both in context dependent. Uh, but in general, I, I tend to think the new research shows we're not as gullible as we once thought we were. That is to say, you know, the idea that, you know, practically anybody could fall for a cult or a Bernie Madoff type pyramid scheme or, you know, or con, con game like that. Um, in fact, most people don't join cults. If you just think about you know, the tens of thousands of self-help groups and movements there are or have been over the last, say, half century. You know, the vast majority of them, you know, are well-intentioned and nothing bad happens. There's no sexual ex exploitation or financial uh, scam going on. You know, people don't drink the Kool-Aid at the end and so on. Mostly nothing happens. And most people don't fall for those sorts of things. Political advertisement is notoriously almost useless. I mean, mainly what political advertising is for is to reinforce to the base what we believe and to kind of rally the troops around our cause. Uh, the idea of like bringing somebody over from the other party to our party, that rarely happens. It's, it's very rare. And so just think back to this QAnon conspiracy. If I, uh, if I convinced you that it wasn't true, you know, you were, say, a hardcore Trump supporter, Republican you're not going to go, oh, well, in that case, I think I'll vote for Hillary or Biden. No, you were never going to vote for Hillary or Biden ever anyway. So, you know, the facts of the case don't really matter. That is to say, whether a claim is true or not is kind of beside the point. That's not what the belief is about. The belief is about something else. The 
conspiracy theory in this case is a stand in a proxy for something else, a deeper kind of truth, maybe a, a lived experience truth or a mythic truth or a you know, religious truth or political truth, not an empirical truth. Is there really you know, a basement at the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C., where this pedophile ring is operating? One guy believed it. I mean, he believed it so much uh, and was uh, uh, dumbstruck that law enforcement wasn't doing anything about this. He went there with a gun and, uh, you know, he shot the place up and then was surprised that there was no basement. And therefore, there was no pedophile ring. And he went to prison. He just got out last year. This happened in 2016. Um, and uh, he was, you know, very um, embarrassed because you know, he really believed it. And I think that is what you would do if you really believed it. Um, and so like the people that stormed the Capitol that day, you know, I'm convinced that, you know, most of them really believe there was some theft going on. So just imagine this, you, you're at work and, and your neighbor calls and says, hey, there's something fishy going on up at your house. I mean, it, it looks like people are breaking in and stealing your stuff. And you're like, oh my God. Uh, and you call the police and, you know, they go, well, we drove by there. We didn't see anything. And you're going, okay, that's a relief. And then your neighbor calls back. Oh my God. Oh my God. They got a moving truck there now. They're, they're hauling your big screen TV out. There, there goes your appliances. Oh my God. They got your clothes. And you're going, oh crap. And you call the police. They go, no, we're not going by there again. There's nothing going on. Well, in that case, I'm going down there with a gun myself to see what's going on. Right. And, and I, I can imagine that the people storming the Capitol building, this is what they're thinking. Like the boss said this whole thing was stolen. And, and I believe it because this is my boss. This is my party. I believe what they tell me to believe in that sense, because they, as an authority, they, you know, you, you, you rely on them just like we rely on any authorities, scientists or politicians, parents, teachers, mentors, and so on. You can't know everything yourself. So you have to rely on authorities and you know, in politics, that's kind of how it works. So I, I imagine that the specifics of the case are less important than the deeper belief you know, this is what those Democrats do. They cheat in elections. Of course, when when the Republicans win, normally, they don't say that anymore. <laughs> um, the weird thing about the Trump case in 2016 was, you know, after he won, he kept up the stolen election conspiracy theory. And it was like, what? Dude, you won. You're, you're supposed to drop the conspiracy theory now. That's how it works, you know. And uh, But it didn't. So that was kind of weird. And then when the stolen election... Uh, investigation of the conspiracy theory went on. Uh, finally, when A.G. Barr came out, you know, Bulldog Barr, Bill Bulldog Barr, Trump's right-hand man said, no, there's no stolen election. Usually the, the troops stand down from, from that point, but they didn't because the boss himself never signed on to Barr's conclusion. So that, that tells us, again, the specifics are less important. Like, where is the stolen election evidence? You know, each of the polling places said, no, we didn't see anything. You know, well, yeah, we studied the videos. No, nope, that, that's not what you think it is. You know, those are not secret ballot boxes coming in at three in the morning. It's not what that is and so on. But the details are less important than, yeah, this is my truth, my lived experience truth. And, uh, and I believe it. So, I, you know, that goes a long way to understanding what uh, people mean when they say they believe something particularly weird like that. A more poignant example, I, I think, uh, I, I, that I use is the O.J. Simpson trial in 1994, 95 results. 
uh, verdict. And, you know, we all watch this, of course, in the everywhere, but I'm in LA, so this is particularly uh, noteworthy um, that, you know, the verdict came in and said, well, you know, he's, he's not guilty. How could they possibly conclude that? I mean, we all watched the evidence. We all saw the trial. And uh, because the defense floated a conspiracy theory, which is that the LAPD planted the evidence, the bloody glove, for example, the footprints, the blood uh, splatter and spots on his socks and on the carpet and so forth. The LAPD planted the evidence. Well, there was no evidence that they planted the evidence, but but historically speaking, this is kind of a historical truth for the African-American community in LA. You know, if you go back to the 1950s, when a lot of uh, blacks moved to Southern California from the South after the Second World War, the LAPD was pretty racist. I mean, it was pretty bad. And the way they treated African-Americans in the 50s, particularly the 60s, was just horrific. And they did plant evidence. Their justification for planting the evidence was, well, we know this guy did it and he's probably going to get away with it uh, and he'll he'll offend again. So we're doing the public a service by planting the evidence and lying about him uh, so that we can uh, stop this evil. That That's their justification, right? So even though things got better in the late 80s and early 90s with the LAPD, this was still for the largely African-American juries, jurors, a kind of uh, historical truth. You know, the, the, the police are racist and plant evidence as a conspiracy theory is true. At least it was true. <laughs> Not in the particular case, the OJ trial, but is a more general truth about what we believe and why we believe it and so on. And so I think a lot of these uh, are kind of stand-ins for something else that's under underneath that. Um, now, that's I'm kind of talking about political here, uh, here since... Uh, you know, just equally important would be, say, religious truths. And since I published Skeptic Magazine, we get a lot of, you know, we're, we have a lot of atheists and humanists and agnostics, non-believers, free thinkers, and so on. And they're very interested in natural explanations for apparently supernatural phenomena. You know, so the parting of the Red Sea and, and uh, other biblical miracles, you know, we periodically receive articles purporting to explain what actually happened there. Well, you know, it was this massive storm and a huge windstorm came up or it was an earthquake uh, or tsunami, you know, caused the sea to split or the plague of locusts or whatever. Even, even the, the uh, apparent resurrection of Jesus, you know, we actually published an article back in the nineties. It was pretty interesting that, you know, Jesus was never really dead on the cross. He was kind of in a coma because his, his disciples gave him this substance. I forget what the, the author said, thought it was, that, that kind of puts you to sleep for a couple of days, and they put him in this cold tomb uh, that was blocked off. And, um, and then he woke up after three days, and Mary Magdalene went there and got him, and they, you know, then, the, then the story goes full Dan Brown. You know, they, they went off to France and had children, and you know, the, the children's 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 ad infinitum all the way back 2,000 years are still with us today. Uh, well, whether this is true or not, probably not. Um, I suspect this is missing the point of the resurrection story. Whether it's true or not is beside the point. That that's it's that's it's a different kind of truth. It's a it's a kind of a stand-in truth for something else. 
you know, that care, you know, bearing your own cross and, and forgiving people and, and, uh, you know, re- resurrecting your life, being born again in this world. And, um, and that, that, that kind of thing, you know, it, it would almost be like asking if a, a Jane Austen uh, novel was true. And if it wasn't true, then, you know, it's just a myth and therefore we don't need to take it seriously. Of course, no one would say that, you know, like Harry Potter, you know, it never really happened. There, there never was a boy named Harry Potter. Well, no kidding. <laughs> You're missing the point of the story if you, you make a statement like that. And so this is how I, I tend now to think of biblical stories, you know, whether they happen or not is kind of beside the point. That's not the point of the stories. It, you know, it's they're, they're more like literature with underlying truths, moral homilies that meant to inspire or be role models or um, to evoke emotion or to kind of capture the human condition, you know, like a Shakespeare play or a, a Tolstoy novel you know, uh, that, that kind of um, has a, a, a literary truth or a mythic truth to it, it's a, a truth about human nature, human society, human tragedy, and, and the problem of evil and these sorts of things. And so um, I find when I look at it that way, first of all, I'm more tolerant of beliefs that I tend to personally think are not true because I've missed something if I think of it that way, in that kind of crude way. But also goes a long way to helping understand beliefs, why people believe what they do, and how I think as a tool of skeptical thinking, critical thinking, scientific thinking, um, you know, narrowing, kind of narrowing your focus to just what's empirically true, uh, you miss a lot of other things that are going on, you know, in life, in society, in culture, in history. And, uh, and so there, you know, I, uh, uh, this is kind of the subject of my next book on conspiracies that I think, you know, helps understand something like QAnon or the rigged election conspiracy theory, or, or just go back in time uh, to any conspiracy theories in the past. To the believers, there's a kind of a deeper truth to it, even if it isn't really true. And of course, believing in it is very dangerous. Uh, it leads people to do things. I mean, you know, Hitler's own beliefs that led to the Holocaust and, and Second World War, you know, were largely founded in a couple of conspiracy theories. You know, the stab in the back conspiracy theory about it was the Jews that caused the Germans to lose the First World War and then caused the um, depression and inflation in the 1920s and 30s and then late 20s and early 30s. And then, um, you know, going back before that, you know, the, the, the fake fraudulent protocols of the learned elders of Zion, you know, Hitler and his cronies, they bought into this as, as true. And, um, and, 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 of course, it largely reinforced people who were already anti-Semitic. I mean, there's some recent research now on, uh, from Ian Kershaw and uh, Richard Evans on, on uh, Germany during the, second, during the Second World War and before that in the, in the 30s and 20s that, most of Hitler's anti-Semitism mainly resonated with those who were already anti-Semitic, people that were not, did not have a propensity to be anti-Semitic in Europe, particularly in Germany, were less influenced by his speeches, for example. And so now I, th- I actually think that, you know, this, there's this little meme, no, no Hitler, no Holocaust. I'd go even further than that. No Hitler, no Second World War. Most of the, his military leaders did not want 
uh, war. They did not think Germany was ready in September 1939 to go to war. They absolutely uh, thought it was a terrible idea. And most of the German people, although they bought into some of the Nazi ideology, particularly the economic policy, uh, we're pretty confident now that most did not sign on for the exterminationist ideology of national socialism. So then how do you explain that this whole thing floated along for 12 years? You know, how do you convert a nation of educated, cultured people like uh, Germans in the 20th century into goose-stepping Nazis? And I now think probably the answer is, well, they didn't. That is to say, the majority uh, never signed on for those extreme portions of national socialism. And remember, the, the Nazis came to power in, as a minority party. They never had a majority. And the moment they got power, they started, um, you know, canceling various measures to keep them in check. And then when once Hitler became official dictator, he also banned the press. And so the moment you silence the media, you silence any kind of voice for dissenters. And then there, there, there arose a, a very small kind of underground media to kind of disperse uh, skepticism about national socialism. And of course, the Nazis glommed right onto that and just locked up everybody. That was the start of the KL system, concentration system, camp system in Germany was initially to, to uh, lock up dissenters, keep them from speaking. Um, so the whole thing is kind of held aloft by a couple of factors. One is called pluralistic ignorance. That is where everybody thinks everybody else is going along with something when in fact most are not. And, and two, you control or, or silence, censor um, a dissent. Uh, because if, if you have enough dissenters speak out, then everybody then that breaks the cycle of pluralistic ignorance or the spiral of silence. Then everybody can see not everybody is going along with this and that they feel emboldened to speak out. But if you see your neighbors being hauled off to concentration camps or you never see them again, of course, you're going to keep your mouth shut so that, you know, the whole thing can be kind of held aloft that way. To be sure, this is not to let off the moral hook. Uh, those who were complicit and or those bystanders who knew what was going on and did nothing. There certainly were those. But do keep in mind that all six of the massive major extermination camps were not in Germany. They were in Poland, far from the prying eyes of German citizens and, and, and religious leaders and so on that. That, that would have spoken out. They did speak out in, in the 1930s when the Nazis started on their uh, euthanasia program, first sterilization and then euthanasia of their own citizens. Uh, and, and, and the Catholic Church and, and the Protestant Church spoke out against this, and they were, of course, silenced. And, and uh, we know that Hitler told Himmler and the others, you know, we are never to speak about this. Don't put it in writing. We're just going to do this quietly. So this goes a long way to saying, you know, again, about beliefs and something uh, as, as, as consequential as that kind of conspiracy theory that can lead to one of the worst genocides in human history, understanding how this could possibly happen in the 20th century in a cultured, educated nation like Germany. This is how it could happen. And the reason we need to understand this, the reason I'm personally interested in studying it, is to prevent it from ever happening again. That's why we got to draw those lines in the sand pretty early on before things go too far down the pathway that you can't stop it. You can't turn it around. You can't dissent. Anyway, 
So those are just a few of the uh, uh, subjects I've had kind of percolating in my mind lately. Of course, there are other factors that go into this that we have to look out for. Um, psychological biases, cognitive biases, motivated reasoning. This is called the umbrella ideas that, you know, once you are convinced something is true, uh, you then go into overdrive to find evidence that supports that it's true and to ignore or rationalize evidence that is uh, disconfirming your beliefs. So the confirmation bias, the hindsight bias, the my side bias, and so on, these all operate to um, drive our brains into acting more like lawyers than scientists. Scientists want to know what's actually true, not what we want to be true. In this metaphor, lawyers, you know, their job is to defend their client, not to figure out what really happened. And, uh, and, and so that's what happens with our beliefs. We, we think, well, this is true. And now I'm going to figure out ways to confirm it. So the, the, the steps that scientists take to disconfirm their beliefs, to falsify their beliefs, to run experiments in which they could find evidence that would go against it. Uh, that is counterintuitive. We don't do that naturally. It doesn't come naturally. Um, that takes training. It takes a degree in science, say, or classes in research methodology and statistics and so on. And, uh, and just, you know, colloquially, you know, when, when we encounter something, we, you know, it, once you've c committed to the belief and, and, and the more personally committed you are, the more at stake you have in it, the harder it is to change your mind. So, uh, again, it's, you know, part of our business is to try to dissuade people from believing certain things that are not true. And it's very difficult if what they believe, you know, is part of their self-identity. So, for example, I, examples I use of this, if you're uh, a Christian and you have doubts about Darwin's theory of evolution and, and you're talking to me, you know, I'm not going to say, well, you have to choose between Darwin and Jesus because, you know, the down of sage, the great British naturalist is going to lose every time. A Christian, by definition, is committed to Jesus as the Messiah and died for their sins and so forth, or else they wouldn't be Christians if they didn't believe that. So clearly that's a, a, a pretty strong identifying characteristic of their belief. And so I can't present it like, well, you should, you, you got to give that up in, in order to accept Darwin. No, you should just accept Darwin because it's true. And then, you know, the religious truths that you believe, those are separate. Those are not the same kind of uh, truth and not necessarily in conflict with evolution. Or, or if I'm talking to a conservative about climate science, because maybe they're um, skeptical of, the, uh, of anthropogenic global warming, again, I'm not going to tell them, well, you got to give up your beliefs in free market capitalism and free trade and, and the American economy and so on in order to accept the science, if I do that, I'm going to lose them as an audience. Uh, because the more committed somebody is to a belief that's part of their identity, then the harder it is to give up. So I just tell them, accept the science and, and keep your foundational beliefs. They're not necessarily in conflict. In fact, you can make a lot of money investing in green technologies that are going to combat anthropogenic global warming, say something like that. So that also goes a long way to explaining um, you know, why people have a hard time giving up their beliefs. Uh, a few years ago, I did a series of debates on gun control with uh, John Lott. John Lott is the economist who wrote that book, More Guns, Less Crime. His theory, to kind of simplify it, is, you know, just arm everybody 
and uh, and this will stop the gun violence. You know, criminals won't go to anybody's houses to burgle them anymore because they're, they'll be afraid of being shot and so on. Okay, I don't happen to think this is true, um, and I have good reasons to think his, his uh, evidence for this is faulty. But what I found uh, in doing these public debates um, is that it, it wasn't really about guns. The, the guns were not uh, what was at stake for most people. People that are so-called Second Amendment people, pro-gun people, it isn't the guns. That The guns are a proxy for something else, that something else being freedom, autonomy, uh, combating um, uh, fascism or, or fascistic-like government uh, uh, actions, standing up to tyranny, you know, self-defense, uh, you know, um, uh, um, you know the, a man in his castle and, you know, I'm going to defend my castle and, and I need weapons for that. And there's evil in the world and we have to stand up to evil and, and a gun is a way to do that. So the idea of someone like me saying, well, you know, maybe we should have some restrictions on who owns guns, you know, like maybe, you know, criminals that, you know, have committed gun violence shouldn't be given guns. And maybe men that have had restraining orders against them by their uh, domestic partners, um, should not have guns because the number one killer of women buy guns. That is to say, when women die by guns, the, the most likely uh, scenario is it's by a, a um, intimate partner, this so-called intimate partner violence. Uh, so maybe they shouldn't have a gun. I mean, just proposing simple things like that, like background checks. Um, you know, uh, conservatives and Republicans, you know, they go crazy over you know, uh, background checks, identity, you got to have ID to vote and so on, it, unless you want a gun, in which case, you know, they're like, well, this is different. I'm oversimplifying, of course, but, you know, the, just think about gun violence uh, versus terrorism violence, you know, 35,000 people a year on average die by guns, you know, split roughly between homicides, suicides and accidents. And, um, you know, to conservatives and Republicans, this is just like, well, whatever, you know, that's the cost of freedom. But if I if, if you said, well, if 35,000 people died a year from terrorist attacks, you know, they would lose their minds. They would triple the budget of the Homeland Security. They would, you know, just cancel all civil liberties. They would they would you know, sort of, you know, cancel the Constitution, except for the Second Amendment you know, to stop this horrific attack on our freedom and our homeland. In other words, I'm saying, you know, there's, there's often a little consistency in people's beliefs. And believe me, I can go on about the left in their inconsistencies as well. And the progressive woke culture, for example, and the cancel culture, you know, we're in favor of free speech, unless you say something I don't like, in which case we're going to cancel you. Okay not consistent. People are not consistent because their beliefs are held for other reasons than they say that they are. And I think that's, you know, why we have to really, you know, dig deep into understanding the psychology behind the beliefs and figuring out what these beliefs actually stand for. And then we can figure out a way to combat what we think are pretty obviously not true beliefs if they're causing harm. Otherwise, then, you know, who cares what people believe if it doesn't cause any harm. Anyway, I think I'll stop there and open it up for for questions and comments, and, okay, great. and we can so see where to go from there. Great. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the first few questions here, then we'll open it up. Thank you for this uh, this uh, thought provoking presentation. So to start, I normally think of absolutism and and in epistemology as there being one truth, 
But then when it comes to skepticism, I think of there being a split in two poles. And I wonder how you think about this. One end being relativism, that there's no truth. And one end being a pluralism, that there's truth in everything. And I wonder how, um, which direction you advocate for in your skepticism. Well, more of a spectrum, that is to say, uh, let's get away from binary thinking uh, and, and that, you know, there are, again, as I mentioned, many kinds of truths, but not all kinds of truth. Not everything is a truth. Not every lived experience you have is equal to everybody else's truths. This is not the case. So, I mean, one of the driving motives I've had since I abandoned religion, and I was a born-again evangelical Christian from the age of 17 to about 24, uh, was to then say, well, okay, if if the divine command theory is not the correct interpretation of the origins of morality and why we should be good and the difference between good and evil and so on, is my only alternative that the kind of traditional liberal position? Well, it's all relative, just cultural relativism. Because I don't believe that either. I mean, uh, you know, to my liberal interlocutors who say this, you know, I say, okay, well, my theory that the Holocaust never happened is equal to yours that it did. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not going that far. It's like, okay. So we can know something about the past. There are some actual objective facts that are not just relative. And same thing with moral values. I mean, that, you know, as, as Lincoln famously said, if, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. And pretty much everybody today will say, well, of course, slavery is wrong. Okay, why? Why is it wrong? And they'll usually articulate something about um, the rights of individual autonomy and freedom and so on. It's like, okay, well, where did those come from? Because you don't believe that God gave them to us. So where'd they come from? And, and at some point they have to make a decision that, well, they come from our constitution. Well, you know, people wrote that, you know, what if they didn't write that? And, and what if America gets taken over by China or Russia or something in centuries from now, and we're no longer existent? What happened? Where do those rights go? In other words, is there any kind of way to figure out something in human nature that we can ground objective truth in that isn't just divine, doesn't come from divine, divine command theory, but neither is it just relative. And, uh, and just one final example, usually, um, you know, liberals will say something like, well, you know, Western culture has no business telling, uh, you know, say Arab states, you know, how they should treat their women. It's like, oh yeah? So you think female genital mutilation is okay? Well, no, why not? Well, and then, and then they kind of, get stuck like well because there are some truths that are actually really true or really wrong you know and like cutting off the genitals of of young girls is actually really wrong objectively wrong absolutely wrong <laughs> right so you know i i that's kind of how i deal with that okay great so you know one of the things we we work to do here in our community is um is not only to be intellect intellectually robust but spiritually dynamic and I have found there to be a strong correlation between fundamentalist religious types and spiritual fervency. But once you bring skepticism into your spiritual practice, it can be hard to turn off questions and just immerse. How do you think about, um, how, how do you think about spiritual practice in relationship to scientific skepticism? I guess it would depend on what you mean by spiritual. What do you mean by spiritual? Well, in that case, I guess um, I, I, I guess I don't just mean a spiritual idea like we're all interconnected or there's oneness, but engaging in a practice 
where mm. one is, uh, has some level of belief in something beyond themselves um, and are working to connect to that. Um, and, and, but yeah. as soon as the skepticism yeah. emerges, oh, maybe this isn't true, it's hard, to, it's hard to remain in that space. Well, but there is a truth to it. That is to say, we know from lots of neuroscience, cognitive science, and social psych research that certain practices are healthier for people than other practices. And so, for example, the number one predictor of longevity is not if you're on a keto diet or a vegan diet, or you know, if you if you you know if you do 200 burpees every morning, or you run a half marathon every week, or you know whatever. No, it's having a, a community of friends and, and a, a loving family relationship, a, a spouse or a partner who loves you and that you love. Having you know a family or immediate family or extended family or a community of people that you care about and who care about you. That's a, that's, that's, that, that according to the correlational studies, these kind of epi, epidemiological demographic type studies, like the blue zones, you know, you, you compare this country to that country or this county to that county and so on, uh, more than diet and exercise and of course not smoking and not drinking excessively and not doing drugs and so on. Uh, once you control for those factors, then, you know, really it's, it's those kind of social practices that seem to matter. And, and related to that, very close to that, having close relationships is doing something what, as you described, is a spiritual practice. That is, you meditate, you pray, you, you have some kind of activity. Maybe you go for long walks on the beach or you like quiet hikes in the mountains, you know, kind of a reverie uh, and respect for nature. Uh, those kind of things turn out to have a, a, a huge effect on our immune systems. They lower stress hormones. You, know, you just draw the blood of people that do this and they have lower stress hormone levels, for example. Uh, my friend Deepak Chopra, who's into this, if you, know, if you want to go kind of an Eastern religious tradition, he sort of has a Western form of Buddhism. Uh, you know, he actually has conducted very rig rigorously controlled studies at his uh, center in Carlsbad, California, the, the Chopra Center, where he has he, he had he had people meditate, you know, really seriously, a couple hours a day kind of thing versus those who were just at this four star, five star uh, resort on the beach, which is pretty relaxing and pretty nice, but no meditation. And then people that that had neither and, you know, got measurable results by, based on those kinds of practices that I think you would probably call spiritual practices. So no, I don't see any conflict with that. We have a question from uh, Joan here in the chat, and then we'll invite folks to unmute themselves. Joan asks, can you say more about how to think like a scientist? Well, yeah. So, okay. So uh, it goes uh, like this, that, you know, there's, there's no one single um, uh, component of the scientific method, but there's several, for example, start off with the null hypothesis. That is assume somebody's claim is not true until proven otherwise. That is to say the burden of proof is on the person making the claim, not on you to refute it. Anybody can assert anything. And most of the stuff you can't refute, you can't check it or whatever. I think this conspiracy theory is true. Well, you know, I, I don't have the time to go check all these things, right? So, but it's not on, the burden is not on me, it's on you. So how good is your evidence? Just think of an obvious example of this, like, you know, a year ago now, let's say maybe a year ago in a month, March of 2020, you know, there were stories about people that had remedies for COVID-19. Yeah, now, the FDA is not going to just start issuing uh, you know, uh, approvals for uh, untested drugs. And, it, and the burden is not on the FDA to test them. The burden is on the person making the claim. 
all right, well, you go out there and do the experiments or run the epidemiological studies and let us know what, what you got. And then we'll have our labs try to replicate what you did and see if there's any truth to it and get corroboration. See, it's that, that corroboration is another part, corroboration is another part of the sci thinking scientifically. That is to say, any of us could be wrong, but a community of people in competition with each other that are experts in a field are less likely to have gone down some path. So for example, one reason I'm reasonably confident that uh, climate science, uh, when it tells us there's a consensus that anthropogenic global warming is true, true with a small T in science, no capital T truths in science, that it's probably true. Even though I don't, I'm not a climate scientist, people send me these papers, I can't understand these complex mathematical computer models of, of, of climate, uh, but I, I trust the system works reasonably well that you know, by the time I get their consensus statement issued by the IPCC that, you know, it's probably been vetted and checked in their competition with each other. So that social nature, the consensus part of the scientific method is also very important. A couple other things I would throw in, uh, you know, Hitchens dictum, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. You don't have to refute anybody. You don't have to say anything You just say, well, that's nice. Uh, I'll, uh, I will retain my skepticism until you show me evidence. Otherwise, you know, is Bigfoot real or aliens real? Uh, well, you know, that would be interesting. Uh, if it's true, show me the evidence. Otherwise, I remain skeptical. So, Professor, and, on this, uh, on, on, to pick a, a controversial topic here, um, you know, you, so you say that one of the starting points is don't believe claims. Um, so, as you know, in recent years, the, the Me Too movement emerged. And it emerged that, um, that anyone who's an ally to women should automatically believe women with claims of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and that this is kind of a repair for a history where women were largely not believed. So like, how would you relate that thinking like a scientist to, to a case like that? Yeah, there I, I would uh, probably defer to more political, or maybe even you might call them jurisprudence truths. That is to say, we, we know historically this is bad, but the correction for it is not just instead of the default mold being don't believe the women, the, 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 the answer to that is not just believe all the women all the time. Neither, neither case is true. <laughs> we have to you know, go to the tried and true methods, which again, sort of a, in a, in a kind of quasi scientific way uh, led to a consensus amongst many uh, jurisprudence scholars over centuries, that uh, it's better to err on the side of assuming people are innocent until proven guilty. You know, better that 10 guilty people go free than that one innocent person uh, go to prison. And that 10 to one ratio has held up, you know, over the centuries as, as a pretty solid, um, you know, kind of st starting point for that sort of thing. I mean, we know from human psychology that you know, not, not just men lie, but women lie, exaggerate, confabulate, get, get, uh, misremember what happened and so on. Uh, this happened, everybody, this is a human condition. Uh, it, it's not restrained to men or women. And, and we know there's been enough cases of innocent men who were, uh, you know, accused of, of rape or whatever, uh, who were unfairly treated. Here, I'm thinking of uh, a number of college uh, cases when the, this is before the Me Too movement took off and then through it 
and the standards changed from um, you know from from the kind of standard legal me measure to the lesser uh, uh, bur burden of proof argument of of um, um, sorry I'm, uh, I'm I'm mixing up my my statements there of the the uh, preponderance of evidence versus beyond a reasonable doubt so the beyond the reasonable doubt in legal scholarship is the harder the higher standard to meet colleges shifted to the lower standard just assume the men are guilty basically assume the men are guilty if the woman accuses him. Well, this is starting to turn around now because a lot of parents are suing these colleges for railroading their sons in these kind of mock trials. And so that, you know, that's a problem. Okay, great friends. Uh, feel free to unmute yourself if you want to jump in now. Well, I want to ask you about your statement there. Maybe you can clarify that the 10 to one ratio you just mentioned, are you talking about, I'm not sure what that means. I, I oh, uh, Blackstone's original from centuries ago. Uh, uh, you know, again, the famous quote, better 10 innocent people or 10 guilty men go free than that one innocent uh, person goes to prison. That 10 to one ratio. It's a, it's a sort of a, a, a signal detection problem. That is to say, when we're trying to detect what we're looking for, how many false positives are we going to get? Uh, so uh, let me let me back up and give a, a little mini explanation of this. You know, in signal detection problem. This is a problem with um, you, you know the that the military has with detecting possible incoming missiles from the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So there's a famous story of um, a Petrov. Uh, I forget his last name now. The Russian. Uh, sort of lower ranking officer who was in charge of detecting incoming U.S. missiles. And there were five of them on his screen. And so it was like, oh, looks like the United States has launched a nuclear missile attack on the Soviet Union. So his job was to, you know, make the call and then launch a counterattack. But he thought, you know, if the United States was going to launch a, a first strike against us, they're going to send more than five missiles. So the five blips on the radar screen, that, that, must, that must be false positives. And to our, to his credit and our uh, survival, uh, you know, he was right. Uh, so the, so the five blips are false positives. There you want to err on the side of avoiding false positive or type one errors like that, because that could, you know, lead to a catastrophe or just think of, uh, you know, so racial profiling and stop and frisk in New York city. Uh, the, the, you know, they had the reason this was canceled is because there were far too many false positives. Of course, there are criminals and of course we want to catch them, but we don't want to catch very many innocent people or just think, you know, we all have to take our shoes off at the airport now. Why? Because of the, the, the shoe bomber. Well, you know, how many have they caught since then? Zero. Right. So, um, you know, the rest of us are paying the price for this. Okay. It's too, too high a price. You're going to just you know, catch too many people that are innocent, right? So the problem with changing the standard to correct for historical injustices is you're going to catch people that, you know, really were not rapists or in the case of, you know, since we just went through the Derek Chauvin case, clearly he seems uh, no doubt that was a correct identification. This was a bad guy and he deserved to be found guilty. Pretty much everybody agrees about that. But now the moment you go down the pathway of saying, well, you know, I bet most police are racist and most of them do this kind of stuff. Well, but actually that's not true. <laughs> you know, we've come a long way in 50 years. You know, I mentioned the LAPD and how racist they were in the 50s and 60s, but they're not like that anymore. 
But if you start looking for that, then every incident becomes a signal that that's a, a, a positive. So let's get them. But what if it's not a positive? What if, what if it's a false positive? What if that guy's not really a racist and that you've misinterpreted what he said or how he acted? You know that. So that's always the problem when you open the filter up wide to catch as many as you can. You're going to catch in your net, uh, you know, signals that are not really correct. You're going to you're going to detect missiles that are not really incoming missiles. Thank you. So somebody else want to jump in with a question? I'm talking about, yeah, I'm playing off of this. Thank you again for that for that great presentation. That um, you know, this was something that, that a lot of us um, in the Jewish community over the last 24 hours with the with the verdict for, of Derek Chauvin, um, people have been using the the, the phrase of tzedek tzedek tirdof, which is from Deuteronomy that says justice, justice shall you pursue. And there are a couple of of different ways in which I I like how this is framed. One is that. Um, that the word sedek is the justice is repeated twice because there has to be both a just process and a just outcome. So, um, so being able to find this that that, that it's the and I think that's to try to um, deal with this. Are you going to catch too many? Uh, there be too many false positives or too many false negatives of ensuring trying to ensure both a uh, um, as much as you can a, a, a just process and a just outcome. And the other piece that I like is the is that. Um, it's justice, justice shall you pursue. It's not justice, justice shall you achieve. It's like the, the pursuit of happiness or towards a more perfect union, that there is a trajectory that's, that's happening. Um, so I'm curious as to, as yeah. to your, yeah. Um, yeah. your interpretation of this also because your book is, is on the moral arc, according to Martin Luther King, that, that the, the arc of, of, of the universe bends towards justice, but it can be a long arc potentially. <laughs> yes, it's a long curving arc here. <laughs> so uh, yeah, this is my, this is my, my activist slogan, you know, what do we want? Slow, peaceful change. When do we want it? Eventually. <laughs> you know, it's like, people are not going to rally around, around my cause very, very, very well that way. Yes, well, so uh, again, the signal detection problem is huge. I mean, this is what science is designed for is, you know, how do we get the correct signals? So just take something less politically charged, just, you know, like cancer detection. So you get a PSA test if you're a guy checking for prostate cancer or you're a woman and you get a, a breast exam and there's a little lump or something. Well, okay, the question is, is, is that uh, actually cancer or not? And we know every single test has a, uh, a certain percentage of false positive, a false positive rate. And so you have to be careful about how you read the data because given the fact that uh, the false positive rate, if it's even just a few percentage and you have you know, tens of millions of people getting these tests, you're gonna get a lot of false positives. And, and, and the reason that's important medically speaking is because the treatment that you might then ensue uh, with has risks and it has consequences. And so every decision like that is a kind of signal detection problem. Just take something as quotidian as dating, you know, who should I marry? Well, that's a signal detection problem, right? You wanna know, I, I, I wanna make sure I got the right person, you know, not the right person, that, you know, seven and a half billion people, there's gonna be more than one. Uh, but clearly not everybody's suitable for, for each other. So, you know, how do you know? Well, that, that's why you have date, 
you go on dates or you know, all these online dating services now are trying to get um, their algorithms set up better to uh, really essentially a signal detection problem that these two people are most likely to be compatible because, and then they have a whole uh, series of personality tests you can take and, and different uh, preferences and career paths and the kind of music you like or whatever, you know, and they kind of crunch them through their algorithms to, to look for the, the, to help you, you know, get a correct signal detection there. Anyway, that's just related to that. Okay, friends, time for one more question. Don't be shy. Well, I've got a question about risk aversion and of course the vaccines and dealing right now with COVID vaccines because now we have J&J &J pulling their, I mean, issues with the vaccine when it was what, only a few people out of thousands. I mean, this is where public perception, um, even the use of masks and how effective that is. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing businesses respond more in terms of public perception than in necessarily a scientific manner, just because of yeah. which, yeah, of, of how they want to respond. Anyway, yeah, how do you of course, yeah. Yeah, I saw a funny meme on, on Twitter this morning about that. Some Somebody out of, uh, uh, on the side of their home, they had a, a poster that said, uh, you know, Johnson & Johnson has put on hold its vaccine because of the these sixth uh, cases or something like that. But they scratched off Johnson & Johnson. They said something like, uh, the, the United States government has put on hold all guns because of the following gun violence. Like, well, that would never happen. <laughs> it's like, right. So how is it, you know, you have a hundred million vaccines and six people, right? So the rate is like in the statistical noise, you wouldn't even see it on a graph, you know? Yeah. And, and yet, you know, gun violence is you know, this massive problem. More people die by guns than by automobiles. And the automobile companies, you know, they just invest enormous resources to try to reduce the carnage, you know, uh, uh, you know airbags and seatbelts and all the, you know, detect, you know, camera detectors and, and back, you know, back cameras, so you don't run over people and behind you and on and on and on. And try, you know, it's like, if we did this with guns, you know, imagine what would happen, but no, no, you know, so different communities have different standards and, you know, I think it's, of course, I agree with you. It's just ridiculous. You know, it's just, I'm not worried about the, you know, the vaccines. I'm just not. And it's just, if you have hundreds and hundreds of millions, a law of large numbers says, even if the rate is 0.0001% of side effects or deaths or whatever, it, that's enough to make the evening news. Like, oh my God, look what happened. So what? It's a little bit, you know, this kind of, and again, these tools of skepticism, you know, you, you hear the kind of statistical, um, miseducation, people hear these numbers reported on the news, like, you know, there's been a hundred percent increase in this particular kind of cancer. And you're like, oh my God, a hundred percent, Jesus, I hope I don't get it. And then you look it up and it's like the rate was one per hundred thousand. Now the rate is two people per hundred thousand people. It's like, oh, I have no chance of getting this. It doesn't matter for what a 400%. It's meaningless, but it sounds so dramatic. Oh, 100% increase. Oh, no. <laughs> right? So it's just crazy. You know, and it's, uh, now, of course, saying that, I, I have to say, if I was a politician, maybe I, I feel like, well, I better err on the side of the precautionary principle because, you know, what if this turns out to be the Spanish flu and 10 million Americans die, then I'm, and it's on me, you know, so... I'm in California, so everybody's you know not particularly crazy about 
Governor Newsom's, they call him Governor Newsom's here. You know, he's constant flip-flopping and we're going to do this. No, we're going to do that. Oh, going to close it up. Oh, we're going to open it up. And, you know, he's just bouncing around. Well, because nobody knows for sure. Again, it's a signal detection problem with a lot of fuzzy gray area that we just don't know. Just a lot. Even Dr. Fauci, you know, he's not a deity. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know either. Right. He's just going on there every night going, well, here's what I think today. But last day, yesterday, you said this. I know. <laughs> well, this is what I'm saying today, because this is what we know today or don't know. So it's a huge problem with medical issues like that, because, you know, human bodies are so complex. I mean, I got the Moderna vaccine first shot. No problem. Second shot knocked me on my ass for, you know, 36 hours. Why? Nobody knows. I know people that are way less healthy than me. Uh, who, you know, had no side effects. I'm like, okay, well, you know, nobody knows. <laughs> Friends, uh, thank you so much, Professor Shermer. Friends, one of the reasons we engage in this, uh, in this science and Judaism series is not only because we think that Judaism can greatly be enhanced um, and ge uh, general American intellectual discourse could greatly be enhanced by deepening this engagement, but because we saw an attack on science, we saw an attack on science, a discrediting of science, that we felt this was so important. Professor Schirmer has given us a gift today to help us not just appreciate scientists, but bring scientific thinking into our, our, own, our own work, our own relationship, our own lives, whether it's political or economic or, or medical or the like. So thank you so much for that. And friends, our, our interview with Professor Steven Pinker that earlier today will be up later today. Our class with Professor Kajniak on social neuroscience perspectives on empathy and compassion is on Monday. And Professor Shermer's recordings will probably be up later this afternoon. Thank you so much for this time. And thank you all so much for joining us.